The Words in Winter podcast is brought to you by Words in Winter, an annual literary and arts festival held in August each year in the Hepburn Shire and surrounding districts. You can find out more by going to wordsinwinter.com. David Skoyga, we are recognised as a leading ecological thinker, teacher, respected writer and thought-provoking speaker. Key publications include Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, 2002. Future Scenarios, How Communities Can Adapt to Peak Oil and Climate Change, 2009. And most recently, his best-selling, Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. At home, David lives in in collaborative partnership with his partner, Sue, on their permaculture property, the demonstration site in Leodora and Hebrews Hoops. To paraphrase David, my writing life has been involving expression of permaculture ethics, principles and practices. We increase our collective potential to survive and thrive challenging futures. In writing books, I'm always looking to ground big picture systems thinking into practical solutions and accessible without the need for support or permission from governments, corporations, or mass media. So David Holmgren, in exactly 10 minutes. <laughs> Change the world. Thank you. And that uh, is an amazing mix uh, following Charlie's extraordinary song of another way to teach the sophisticated systems thinking which is behind permaculture. And I suppose by way of weird contrasts, I should explain uh, the ridiculous suit that I'm wearing. But following the launch of Retro Suburbia at the Sustainable Living Festival in February this year, uh, when the I had already been persuaded to get into a white suit uh, by Luke Taylor from the Sustainable uh, um, Festival. Uh, Sue put me in this suit, but apparently this suit came from the set of Neighbours. So what could be more retro-suburban than that? Uh, but jumping back to that question of whether a book can change the world and that serious idea. It also feels like a very self-indulgent thing to be talking about that history. But what was going on in 1977 that led to six mainstream publishers offering to publish this book written by uh, a cantankerous and little-known Tasmanian academic, Bill Mollison, and a completely unknown graduate student, uh, myself. I've often used that as an example to illustrate the huge upwelling of ideas that we could call related to sustainability that was happening in the 70s. And so partly whether a book can change the world is whether its timing is perfectly in sync with what's happening. And this book published in 1978 is for me the peak 
or is part of the peak of what I call the first wave of modern uh, environmental thinking that you could say started in 62 with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring or in 1968 with the Santa Barbara oil slick crisis or when I pretty much date it to is the 1972 Limits to Growth report and then the oil crises of 73 and 79 and the huge ferment of ideas around what we would today call sustainability that was going on. So Bill and I caught that wave uh, which I date as ending ironically in 1983 when the environmentalists thought was the dawning of the new age with the first election campaign fought on an environmental issue which was, was of course partly the subject of Kate's uh, novel, The Franklin Campaign. And yet that was really the end of that first wave. We got the Thatcherite Reaganite revolution with the human face, with the Hawke Keating government and all of the ideas, uh, especially of the counterculture, were sort of pushed to the, the margins. Um, for a lot of people that meant moving to the margins, uh, whereas in a lot of ways permaculture and the huge interest, the huge popular interest started actually in the suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney. Um, so that, that is uh, certainly something that uh, at a young age informed my attitude and understanding of publishing. I'd come from a family that ran a technical bookshop and were very bookish people. Uh, and the experience of being published, I thought the publishing industry was a con. Uh, so, uh, like, the publishers didn't do much for the whole process. Um, and so I was very sceptical about that. And also, the permaculture culture of do-it-yourself uh, led to a series of case study publications in the 80s that we self-published. Partly those were self-published because no publisher would publish them. Like, who would publish something of that format? <laughs> um, and it's only about one property. Uh, whereas what I noticed with having this published is they said, oh, well, you've got to generalise the text to make it relevant to the whole of southeastern Australia. And said, but it's written for Tasmania. No, the market's not big enough in Tasmania for a book. So I went the other way and did, you know, I realised that no, case studies don't get published. That type of information is filtered out by the publishing industry. So that was uh, quite, a, quite a change and it also informed uh, the publication in 2002 of Principles and Pathways because as a complex uh, book of systems thinking, uh, it also has a whole lot of personal anecdotes and that's not allowable in the publishing industry either. The gatekeepers who decide what you can mix with what and it's one of these or it's one of those. Well, my attitude has always been get stuffed, <laughs> do it ourselves. And I thought when we published this in 2002 that the internet had already broken the grasp of the intellectual gatekeepers. But it was interesting that 
we never got a, a mainstream review, a review in mainstream media of this book. It's since sold 35,000 copies and been published in, um, I think, nearly a, a dozen languages. And of course, that's on the back of the global permaculture movement, which really I can attribute not primarily to this book, but the permaculture design course that Bill Mollison set in place in the years following the publication of this book and the following one that he wrote Permaculture 2 in 1979. And then in 1981, those courses started and that was really the, the trigger of a global movement. So catching the wave and that follow-up process and that those ideas were about positive things that people can do themselves, the self-empowerment, uh, I think were some of the ways that contributed to whether a book can change the world. Um, of course, that, in a way, is a sort of an arrogant thing. You know, I thought when this was published that books were really important, uh, but I came to realise, no, they're produced all the time and people don't necessarily read them or don't necessarily understand them, or if they do, it actually doesn't change their life anyway. So, <laughs> but, but I certainly had a strong view how important books were uh, at that uh, time. And I suppose the, the last thing in relation to this book uh, I was working on a book about the theory behind my retrofitting the suburbs idea and then dumped that whole manuscript to write um, the sort of manual for the punters. Uh, so in some ways that's all a, a journey uh, that has gone against all the rules and yet somehow in an odd sort of way it's worked. I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you, David. Have I got the microphone in the microphone? I don't think I do. I don't mind playing through the number, but I just need to. <laughs> you know, a bit of amplification. Just to switch it. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> well, joke number one. Thank you, Kate. Um, uh, thank you, David. <laughs> Um, before we move on to our in conversation, I really I want to ask Kate to respond um, not just to what David has said now, but her own experience, which is once I read her bio, you'll understand. Kate has lived an extensive writing life, you know, and her biography in itself is an event, you know, and. I am so pleased that we have these two together because in my mind, they are two of the most vital, engaging and thought-provoking writers, not just here in this area, but throughout Australia. And we're just lucky enough that a lot of that initial seeding of ideas, of community, have happened in our place. And I want to acknowledge you both for that and um, how much that is meant to my life, you know. And one of the interesting things there, just hearing David, is it's, you know, the thing is, can a book change the world? But what he's saying, can a book change David Holmgren? Or can a book change the author? And I want to, I want to stretch that out a little bit later on. But right now I want to hear from Kate. Kate Kennedy is one of Australia's most prolific 
and award-winning short story writers. In early Dalesford days, Kate twice won the Age Short Story of the Year competition. Her short story collection, Like a House on Fire, in 2012 won the 2013 Steel Rudd Prize in Queensland's Literary Awards and currently on the, is on the VCE reading list. She is the author of the highly acclaimed short story collection Dark Roots, novel The World Beneath, which David spoke briefly about, travel memoir Sing and Don't Cry, and the poetry collections Joy Flight and the Sign of Other Fires, The Taste of River Water, which was published in two th May 2011 and won the Victoria Premier's Literary Award C.J. Dennis Poetry Prize. So, excuse the slight humble grab bag brag about my friendship with these both, but <laughs> <laughs> I gladly and wonderfully present Kate Kennedy. That's so lovely. Thank you, Pete. And it is, it's interesting talking about community in terms of books, isn't it? Because I mean, on one level, we all know that a, a book a book can't change the world. Only people can sort of change the world. It's, but this idea that, what did you call it, David? A, you decided to write a manual for the punters. You know, I think in lots of ways, every book is a manual for the punters. That's what you put something in the world to do. A, a book is something designed to do something to somebody, isn't it? It's a thing. It's got its own kind of amazing embodied energy, and that's it. It's marks on the page. It's 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 twenty six of the alphabet that somehow we take and somebody takes inside themselves and whatever form that it's in, it has its own life beyond you. And it's very interesting talking about or listening to you talk about your experiences in the publishing world and how I think this is a very um, sort of politicised discussion in lots of ways because of that idea of what, what does a what can a book do? What, what is that for? What's that incendiary thing that's going on with, with the artifact itself, the thing? And you know, you look at what happens around the world whenever there's a repressive regime that you know springs up. The first person, the first people that those regimes kill are writers and poets and artists and cartoonists and comedians and you know the people who are the cultural commentators who understand the power of uh, when you make something and put it in the world, it's going to change people and those people have their own way of, uh, of acting now. Um, in lots of ways, I think, as I said, every book is a kind of a handbook or a manual for the punters, which is why I like books like this book. I like books with this kind of binding, <laughs> yeah? Because you do that, right? And that's, that's your song and the chords, or that's the thing you're going to read aloud at the funeral, or that's the recipe that you're going to use. And a book is something to be used in that way, as a manual, as a handbook. And what I love about David's books is that they're unapologetically those. I wouldn't worry too much about what the publishing marketing people tend to think about your work. Who cares? What happens is you're making something that's getting into the hands of people who are going to use it in some way. And I guess that's the kind of thing that whatever it is you're writing, it's it's difficult uh, when you work or when you write stuff which is um, not so self-evidently um, a useful set of instructions or a useful handbook or a useful manual of some kind, but it's something like a, you know, a poetry collection. You can imagine how berating you can be about yourself when... <laughs> 
it's true. I remember this back in um, my very first thing I ever had published. So I was living here in Dalesford and um, I'd come back from um, working in Mexico. That was the turn of the century. And um, I'd had this amazing experience and I remember boring everyone shitless about it and what an incredible time I'd had and how it had changed me and how I didn't know what to do with all those experiences. And you know, finally what I did, ridiculously, was think, well, I'm writing something now and I am seem to be pressing the line break a lot and maybe that's a poem. I'll just do another one then. And finally I had like, you know, 35 pages of these and to my astonishment, so I wanted to publish them. And I remember I had that letter and I was talking to a friend and I said, uh, it just feels so bourgeois and so stupid. <laughs> really, it does. Of all the things that have happened to me, and I've taken them in, and they've, I want to make something out of them. Of all the things to make, seriously, a book of poems? <laughs> I remember saying to him, the world doesn't need actually more poems. The world needs clean water. You know, It feels terrible to be making this my response, to be making something like this artefact when what we could be doing is something so much more useful. And this friend, also a poet, very wise person, said, well, he said, maybe what you should do, what you need to do, is write poems that are more like clean water. <laughs> that's a very good answer. And in fact, that's why uh, my last book of poetry is called The Taste of River Water because that idea never left me, that that's what you're kind of doing. Whatever it is that's happened to you that you're going to transmogrify into something else, if you're going to, if you're going to kill a tree to do that, by me, <laughs> you better make sure that it's going to be something quenching for somebody who didn't know they were thirsty. Do you know what I mean? It better be something that you're choosing that form in order to think about what you want that thing to do in the world, I guess. So the idea of fiction or non-fiction, or is it going to be poetry? Is it going to be a handbook? Is it going to be a recipe book? Is it going to be my family's you know, family history? Is it going to be this incendiary political manifesto? All those things. People have always had those thoughts about what to make out of what's happened to them. That's, you know, that's existential. That's Jean-Paul Sartre when someone said, what's freedom? And he said, I'll tell you what freedom is. Freedom is what you do with what gets done to you. That's it, isn't it? What are you going to do with what gets done to you? What are you going to make out of what's happened to you? So your thoughts, David, when you said earlier that, um, you know, you look at something and you realise that there's a marketing... What were the words you used where you said you, nobody wants a personal history in this particular style? What were you saying about the way that the book worked? Oh, mixing of uh, complex, abstract theory with personal anecdotes is one of the uncool things that they don't go together so yeah. that that personalizing something is no that's a different sort of book yeah you know they they don't exist in the same yeah. place so these various rules about that what can be put together yeah according to some marketing person at a publishing house not according to the world of readers because, you know, that's I, one of the books I bought that talks, I think, about changing the world is this book by um, Michel de Montaigne on solitude, written in the 1500s. Exactly that. The person who said, I want to go and be solitary for a while, and I want to write about my inner life and how loss and unravelling happens. It's a book of personal essays. How does that sound? And <laughs> not great, actually. That's, that's got no market. <laughs> But in fact, that idea that you're allowed, you've got permission somehow to make something out of your experiences, um, it's a very small book on solitude, but it's, it's exactly what you describe. It's the idea of um, the terrain or the territory that we feel we want to make sense of and make coherent for ourselves. 
somehow those things come here. And they can hear not just in our minds when we create them, but they can hear for a reader on a level that we're out of control of. We're hardly aware of what coheres inside a reader's mind when they read 984, so just pick that up off the table there. <laughs> Animal Farm. But both these books that were published a good many decades ago, I happen to know had a massive spike in sales when Trump was elected in the US. Where are we going to find our comfort to find a fable for what's happening to us that feels so incredibly incoherent? Oh well, I'll, I'll look to fiction. I'll look to someone who's fashioned or shaped a fable out of something so horrific, the only way we can think about it is in terms of fable or story, and on it goes. On it goes with, with story doing stuff to people. And when you put that in the world, you know, instead of feeling that sense of self-berating that what's the point of this book of short stories or this book of poetry or anything that you're making, instead of thinking, well, what am I, what am I wasting? What thing am I could be doing instead of what I'm doing now? It's a very focusing thing, isn't it? To think about why this, why here, why now, why me? Those are the questions that you do sit with with a blank page and try and work out. So I reckon every form has got its own way of, of creating a kind of a, a change, whatever sort of manifesto it is that you're putting in those, in those pages. Yeah. Um, look, you know, I do have some probing questions, but I, I think we need a bit more music just at this stage, and then um, we'll come back with that. Uh, Charlie, I have to make an apology because I did call myself third banana, and that would be elevating you beyond this. I'm actually fourth, and this is our third banana. Uh, Charlie McGee. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to give us another tune, and then you know, I'll come back to uh, David and Kate, and sort of um, just flesh out some of those things from their their talk. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for that um, that insight. It made me think about my writing as well, and drawing on that experience, and sort of drawing from David's writing into my own experience, and synthesising that in the song. So that's exactly what I've been doing. And uh, this was actually the first permaculture song that came out, which was about growing up as a young hippie in the southwest of WA, in my dad's mudbridge here. When I was a little boy, I liked to catch the rain, while people all around my town watched me fluoride down the drain. But because our little shinge was in one day, the only water we had to use was in a tank or from the rain. Like 
fish and chips. I risk you piles of wasted oil from the back of restaurants. Instead of being a fool if I bought my fuel with this oil, nobody wants. Cause there's no such thing as a waste. Let me feel Only stuff in the wrong place. Why is there no such thing as a waste? Thank you, Charlie. When I, when I got the recordings of Charlie's songs uh, covering these 12 complex abstract yes. systems thinking principles, uh, I listened to the songs and I expected to cringe, <laughs> uh, but I didn't cringe once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, this guy gets it completely. And uh, Charlie's work has been amazing at conveying these ideas mm. around the world uh, through music. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you, Charlie. Yeah. I suppose for you two, I, I, the first question I want to put to you in this sort of hyper-information age, you know, what is the relevance or the role of the book in getting, setting the platform, holding the ground for change to happen? You know, we've already seen with Charlie this sort of crossover from David's work into song, into music, into storytelling, you know. So where where does the book sit in that? Does it just sit in the shelf? Does it go out to the world, you know? Well, it's I've always been quite agnostic about that and, you know, as early as a couple of decades ago, I was thinking about this explosion of media and other forms of expression and uh, it was interesting when I was working on this manuscript for the uh, retrofitting the suburbs ideas and showed it um, the manuscript to uh, colleague Adam Grubb and the first part of the manuscript was really about the logic of energy descent future and then the second part was about how to retrofit the suburbs to adapt to that and he said oh the, the first part of this needs to be published immediately and him being a complete internet geek you know the logical thing was to publish it on the net which became the future scenarios work and I thought that was a great way of getting the ideas out there immediately. And then our distributors in the United States, Chelsea Green, said, oh, we'd like to publish it as a book. And I said, but it's free on the net. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, you know, no, we, we think there's a market for it. Um, and they went and published it, so we let them do it, break my rule that I don't let anyone else publish my work, I do it myself. Um, so, and I, that made me think a lot about, you know, I mean, the various things that are said about the potency and the power mm -hmm. and the resilience of the book. And so I think there's, there's so much uh, turmoil in, in relation to all these things, it's very hard to say anything of, of uh, substance. But obviously the tactile nature, there's there is something different about books 
Um, and we're certainly hoping so because this is a lot heavier than the PDF. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, one time I got in the in the taxi in Sydney, and I had a, I'd been to a place and I'd bought a whole lot of books and a big heavy suitcase of books, and uh, the taxi driver was a young man from um, I think Mauritania or so, you know he was from a small African country. He was here studying in Australia, and he was saying, "Oh, are they all books inside there?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Oh my God!" He said, "I would love more time to read." He said, "I love to read, but I'm." studying full-time and I'm driving this camp full-time and so my said my, my dream would be he said to be on an island just with like my Kindle you know like stashed with like you know 3,000 books and nothing else to do just me and the Kindle there's a long pause he said oh and a generator obviously <laughs> <laughs> because embodied energy is already in this right in fact, solar energy has kind of made these, right? Because they're from trees, which is, I think they're, they're thinking giveaway. They've already got their own life and their own power inside them. You don't need to plug anything in. So in lots of ways, the platform or the device in which we're getting our information, that's changing, but the content is the important part, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just... I, I, I want to go back to sort of writing style, you know, because one of... With my... Um, association with David's book, one of his key ideas is not to be expert out onto the world. You know, this essentially is to bring the book back to the people, you know, but not give up its complexity within that. So I just want to ask you both, you know, and I'll, I'll begin with you, David, like how do we maintain a balance between with writing style, coherent message, authority, and open exchange? So inviting the reader in on equal terms. Yeah, well, that's something I, I never even, I suppose, thought of myself as a particularly competent writer and that uh, having too many ideas uh, for a start um, and not editing or filtering them uh, enough and people said about principles and pathways that it was like rich uh, chocolate cake you could just sort of eat a little bit at a time <laughs> um, that was some of the kind of things <laughs> that were said about it uh, and so that whole problem of oh but they need to know about this or this proviso or that and sometimes overloading things of maybe an, an overactive mind that's wanting to sort of put everything into something and certainly the process of getting to retro suburbia um, uh, with the help especially of my editor Beck Lowe who coming from permaculture thinking is sort of the two of us working together of of refining that process of more focusing on what's the reader need rather than the more self-obsessed ideas person who that I am with the overactive mind throwing things out all the time and maybe other people can make use of it in some way but yeah starting to get to that point of, of thinking more about how is how is someone receiving this what is actually useful to them and that's obviously a process that to some extent all writers I suppose go through yeah. I don't know um, Kate, I mean you did talk about it before when you said about you know how do I bring the reader in mm. 
on terms that is relevant to their life and their need. You know, it's it's not. You said before, Peter's like what. How can I do an equal footing? It's not an equal footing because we're assuming literacy for a start. I'm assuming people speak English. I'm assuming a certain uh, sort of cultural confidence in currency that people understand how to apply principles into something which is which is action. Whereas, of course, the best way to learn something is to be shown something, right? So I guess it's um it's an intermediary step between one person being able to show someone else how to do something. And at the moment, it's probably one of the one, you know, one of the few things that we have that I don't, I can't know you, or David can't know you, but through this um, medium, you can have a kind of a relationship. You're having a sort of a conversation about something through this strange medium of, um, I guess, our shared literacy or our shared understanding of something. So it's got its own. It does have its own power in the world. The author doesn't have to be there. The book is there, speaking for. And it's like the imagination, you know. I always think this about the way that we, if we just think for a minute where we are and the chair you're sitting on and the room that we're in and the clothes you're wearing and the technology you're holding and um, the glasses you might be wearing or shoes, everything has been imagined by someone. Everything in order to bring it to you. It's had to be imagined and they had to get it wrong a few times and they probably got laughed at by a few people and they tried another way and bit by bit an artifact or a thing is invented, a thing is made that we all just, it becomes invisible to us. And I think in lots of ways the information that we receive in the world that's come to us from books is, that's, that's what's given our ideas longevity and it's had such an integral part in terms of how civilization really has been developed, I think. Um, thank you, Kate. Um, I think one thing I also, you know, when we talk about the word change, you know, like change the world, the thing, knowing both David and uh, Kate at a more intimate level and understanding family life, community life, um, I'm really interested in what is the change within? Okay, you write these books, you, you're out in the public sphere, uh, you have a home life, a family life, you know, uh, you have your partnerships, you have children. You know, what does the book do within before it goes out? <laughs> well, it, it gets it off your chest for a start, right? <laughs> Yes. So you get a better night's sleep occasionally. I think it is, you know, you said before, David, it's like um, there's too rich a mix, you know what I mean? It's like you've got too many ideas and our beautiful little primate minds are in the churn, aren't they? They're churning, churning, thinking about what we're going to do, how we're going to integrate these things, how we're going to make these things sort of form a pattern of some kind. Up <laughs> through the morning, what's the pattern? What's it all mean? Um, I think sometimes the inner life that gets changed is, is the kind of movement towards what you're trying to do for a reader, which is to make a whole assemblage of things which seem incoherent to you. It's, it, the making of them becomes it becomes more coherent, and you'd have to hope that, it, I mean, very occasionally, uh, you, you manage to pull that off where the reader also goes from an experience of incoherence to coherence, you know, where they, they come out of that thing that you've written a little bit different. A little bit changed, and whether you use a character as an avatar of some kind to create that, or whether what you're using is the idea of a principle that you can somehow create in such a way that it turns on a light for somebody and they get what they can do, how they can make that 
quite coherent to themselves. I think it's it's a way to get it out of your head and um, into a form that someone else will be able to use if you're not around or you're not there to try and, you know, grab them by the lapels and make them understand. The thing that you've written is going to do that for you. So it's a kind of a self-soothing for me in lots of ways. It's a relief. How about you, David? Yeah, well, I, I, I'd agree with that. I suppose for me a lot of that is there's a been a big intermediary stage which is that role of the teacher and a public speaker sure. and just raving to volunteers who come to our place all these ideas or talking about stuff and you try stuff out and then you try it out more formally you know you're actually teaching these ideas and then got to be good to put it down in a book so you don't have to keep saying it over and over again. <laughs> That's right. So, so yeah there's been for me that that middle stage between the ideas bouncing around in the head which for I imagine for a lot of professional writers don't don't necessarily have that in between stage it's just the writing process is you do that is by how yourself. it comes out yeah but whereas I've always it's the processing with other people the talk yeah that's I've always done it that way and um yeah develop my ideas through talking and through teaching and and sometimes it means you're sort of making it up as you go along mm -hmm. and sort of bullshitting uh, and then sort of see how that worked <laughs> before you actually write that down. Yeah. Very similar process to fiction. Like I've always been very particular about facts and especially I suppose in the early days of permaculture, my co-author Bill was renowned for sort of massaging the the facts and sort of elaborating and conjuring this world of permaculture into being, which he was very good at. And I would sort of tend to be, oh well, you know, that's not necessarily true or whatever. So I've always been very particular about that. And then I was asked to write a piece. Uh, some years ago that was published in uh, the then Permaculture Diary and it was called A Chance Meeting Spring 1974 which was the time I met Bill Mollison and it's a story I'd told many times before but it was pretty brief and I was thinking about what was the seminar that I met him at in environmental design and what was it called and I didn't, couldn't remember that at all and then I had the shocking thought that for the sake of the story, I could make it up. <laughs> so I did. I, I made up the, the title of the, and it didn't substantially change the facts as I remember them exactly very clearly and have told many times over. But then afterwards I read, read it and I thought, Gee, I wonder if that's recovered memory. <laughs> and you know, that whole blurring of yeah. edge sort of uh, for someone who's not uh, been a writer of fiction, that was a, a sort of like a, ooh, a stepping near the edge of a precipice. Find the storyline thing. Yeah. Uh, thank you, David. Um, following a suggestion from Kate, I think it's time to open up some questions from the floor, you know, because we are here as much in your regard as we are in David and Kate. So questions from the floor? Anyone? Oh my God. You, uh, okay. Yep. Thank you, David. You're a suburbia 
Yeah, it's it's a big plan in a way, but a plan that's focused in, here where we are in Victoria, in Australia, rather than always scattering across the world to picking up all of those like-minded people who might be interested in my ideas. And I think there's now a critical mass of people doing stuff that they might identify as retro suburbia in our suburbs, in our regional towns, in our small villages, that it's time to go out and spruik that and push that hard, not really because just that will sell the book and get the ideas out there, but that will be an affirmation for what people are already doing. So in that sense, I think there could be a critical mass that we could create a new normal uh, of maybe 10, 20% of the population actually making these household level changes and that whether that happens or not, I believe will depend on larger timing more than how good we are at that or how good the book is and the critical event that I'm a bit relying on to catapult that up is basically the collapse of the Australian property bubble this year. I believe it is happening uh, but I think like all of other things depend on what is the larger psychosocial, economic, geopolitical context that sets the con conditions and yeah if the timing's right in the next year or two I think that possibility of a, a huge groundswell of positive change. Yeah, yeah, to some extent. I mean, obviously, retro suburbia is powered by permaculture ethics and principles, as my colleague Richard Telford uh, sort of coined that term, you know, in the sense of that that's what's powering it uh, behind that. But, but it's also that thing of connecting to something that uh, ordinary people can connect to uh, and that they don't have to have heard of what permaculture is, they don't even have to believe in climate change, they might even be the sort of people who in another country would vote for Donald Trump, but that retro suburbia would still make sense to them. And that's, that's certainly part of the idea also with this huge fracturing, social fracturing that we're seeing that uh, a colleague in Britain, Peter Harper, said of uh, the Aussie Street um, story that is in this book, he was saying in post at Bitten, he said, maybe we need something like Aussie Street as the, the plug adapter to connect to the other part of Britain, which seems to be sort of launching off into some other space. So those ideas that, you know, we can connect to people across the back fence about really quite simple 
practical things that develop the household and neighbourhood is something that cuts across ideology and uh, sort of uh, the cultural uh, wars that seem to be intensifying. Um, Kate, did you want to respond to that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I even wanted to hear a bit of it too. Thank you, David. Thanks for the great question. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I think, you know, very much those things, uh, you know, apply that, that it is possible for ideas to come from, apparently from the fringe, and yet sort of uh, really make an impact. And as the, the principle that Charlie started with, the edge is where it's at, uh, you know, we, I mean, we definitely believe that, that all the significant change to systems, both in nature, uh, that eruptive change, disturbance change, but also evolutionary change, doesn't come from the solid centre. It actually comes from the periphery. And, you know, we can see that in a, in a cultural historical sense, and it's, it's actually right through um, ecological theory as well. Uh, so uh, I think that is possible, but there's times when an ecological structure or a social structure has the doors open for whatever reason that can allow influences to, to, to flow through. And you know those those doors are not necessarily open most of the time, but you know I think it's one of those times. Thank you, David. Um, thank you, Patrick. Um, talking about coming from the fringe to make an impact, I want to acknowledge David's suit and shirt again. Uh, <laughs> I, th I think we just have that on the front cover. Um, we need to wind up. I. Um, it's a privilege to be here today and um, in closing I would like to thank um, the organisers of this Words of Winter Festival. You know, there's some over here and you know, you know, Maya, you know, you know, we talk about home in the ground and um, this is the classic example of holding our community space so we can share with each other. Um, you know, it has remarkable creativity, Maya, and others, work ethic, and above all, community grace, you know, and we underestimate that, and I thank you all for the way, not only you do the work, but the way you go about it. Um, you know, I just think it's got, yeah, 
one eight, uh, like divergent content, thoughtfulness, you know, and succinct activation, which to me is simply remarkable. And thank you. Um, so I want to thank you and others for sharing this gift with us, for David and Kate, uh, Charlie, for being a part of that. Um, so just to move on, don't forget we've got an event tomorrow called Inside Retro Suburbia, the making of the book here again at 1pm. Um, and this is about the book project itself and open discussion about the remarkable journey to create and self-publish David's uh, best-selling new book. Books can be purchased from um, Sue today and um, signed by David. And in closing, I just want to say one simple thing. Yes, a book can change the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Words in Winter podcast. Words in Winter is a literary festival that runs every year in the cold winter months of August in Dalesford, Victoria, Australia. If you'd like to find out more about the festival, please go to wordsinwinter.com. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find them at wordsinwinter.com forward slash podcasts.